welcome to another episode of Me and Mr. 80s. I'm me, Nick, and there's Mr. 80s. Hi there, this is Daryl. Nice to be with you again. Thanks for listening. We have lots of listeners from all over, which is very cool. Uh, hopefully you didn't alienate the Germans <laughs> the last time. Yeah, I've got a friend who's uh, serving in the Army, and he's uh, stationed over in Germany, and I was wondering if it was maybe him that was our German hit, but we had more than one hit in in Germany, didn't we? That's true. Today's topic, I love this topic, one-hit <laughs> wonders that weren't. <laughs> and yeah, it's always a popular thing for different places, you know, VH1, music publications, whatnot. They like to put out their lists of the greatest one-hit wonders of all time, and they get so lazy. <laughs> and they put people on those lists that don't belong on those lists. And they try to do some kind of annoying revisionist history by saying that somebody that blatantly had more than one big hit <laughs> was a one-hit wonder just because they had maybe one hit that was huger than the rest. Yes. And so this show, we're going to be dissecting those artists who have been bitch-slapped by history <laughs> and have somehow been reduced <laughs> to being known as one-hit wonders when that's not... That's not the true story. I like bitch slap by history. Bitch slap by history. <laughs> <laughs> so where would you like to start? Um, you should go first. Well, the one that riles me up the most, and so I'm putting him first, is Canada's own Corey Hart. It drives me crazy <laughs> whenever I see sunglasses at night pop up on a one-hit wonder list. Um, he had another hit just from that album. He did. I mean, wasn't Never Surrender? It ain't enough. It ain't enough was a ballad that was off of that same that same record. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, the, if you compare those two, uh, I mean, Sunglasses at Night was a top ten. Uh, it ain't enough was a top twenty hit, mm-hmm. but it's not as uh, well remembered. But then his very next album, Boy in the Box, the lead off single is Never Surrender, okay. which. Actually, was a bigger hit than That's Sunglasses huge. at Night. And I think that it's just because Sunglasses at Night... Uh, it's almost iconic, though, in how it's remembered. And it's become kind of a camp classic, too. Exactly. I mean, yeah, well, maybe not iconic for its for goodness, but... <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's not a bad song. Oh, no. But it is very... Uh, I've heard it described as being kind of a new romantic kind of a song, sort of a Duran Duran kind of influence sort of a thing. And yeah. I guess that I can uh, that I can hear that. But it had that ridiculous video, that kind of <laughs> George Orwell-influenced thing where people are being suppressed because of their sunglasses. I mean, I don't know. It was, yeah, the video was dumb, but all videos were dumb back then. In the 80s, come on. <laughs> you can't fault that. And... I don't I just I think that a lot of I think he suffers from what I call Rick Springfield syndrome mm. in that uh he he was too good looking to be taken seriously. Hmm. Okay. Uh he was actually uh he wrote all of his his own stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think he ever had co-writers. I mean, I could be wrong on that, but he wasn't one of these guys that uh you know bought songs. He always had a hand in the creation of his songs and uh was a really good performer, and in fact, the album that uh, Never Surrender came off of, Boy in the Box, I believe is one of the great underrated commercial pop albums of the 1980s. Okay, I can believe that. It had uh, three singles off of it. Uh, the title track, which people don't really remember for some reason, but it was another big hit, Boy in the Box. I'm not sure I could rec- I remember. I remember the name, but I don't remember the song. Another stupid video. I think that one was sort of like a Mad Max Road Warrior kind of influenced video. Uh, and then his cover of, um, oh no, that came later. Uh, then there was a ballad called Everything in My Heart that was also off of that record. So just off of uh, you know his first two albums, he had five chart hits. Uh, and there was, just, there was more to him than Sunglasses at Night. I completely agree. I think uh, Never Surrender... There's a a part in the video where a uh, a Volvo drives away and looked just like my parents' car, and I was always wondering. I wonder if maybe we accidentally got into that shot. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So that's and it just I, just laziness, just absolute laziness to say that all there was to this guy was sunglasses at night. And how many albums do you know how has he released since that period? Uh, I mean, he still has recorded stuff. Yeah, and he was, I mean, he was releasing uh, singles up uh, into the early 90s that were still hitting the charts, uh, you know, no longer top 10 or, or top 20, but still getting played on the radio. Uh, I think A Little Love um, was his, his kind of the, the last blast of his, his high point period, which consisted of about f- uh, five albums, I believe, his sort of creative peak. <laughs> And I'm sure he wouldn't call that himself. Because <laughs> there, so there was First Offense, Boy in the Box, Fields of Fire, Young Man Running, and Bang. Oh, Bang. Oh, that was the cutout classic. My <laughs> God, that thing was everywhere. And then he kind of took some time off. And I think he's released a handful of albums uh, since then. Uh, he married some French model. Um, Don't they all? Yeah. <laughs> so... That's that's the one that whenever I see that on the list, I'm just like you, <laughs> bastards. <laughs> I mean, some of these some of these artists that are on here, it is kind of splitting hairs a little bit because, yes, they are known for one big iconic hit, and the other hits that I had they had were much lesser known. But with him, it's just it's just it's a total cop out, and yes, and we need people to just go revise their history. You know, just strike him from the books. Yeah. Be bitch slapped by history. <laughs> so that's my number one choice for the one hit wonder that wasn't <laughs> Corey Hart. All right. Um, I think my mine is not going to be that, you know, uh, uh, big, but I, I Devo to me, you know, despite the fact that we're in Ohio and they came from here and all that, but they still, you know, whip it is, you know, obviously, bigger than everything else but i mean girl you want uh was big enough to not only be uh as far as i know it was a you know a single i don't know how well it did Mm -hmm. but it got covered by uh soundgarden and it's a hell of a good song and they put out tons of albums and have you know it seems like they did other videos maybe you know not <laughs> not to the uh 80s classicness of whippet but they certainly were a you know a an 80s band that deserved to be better remembered than just as a one hit wonder there's a couple of things with devo and uh, the uh, the album that came out after whippet i think that the album was called new traditionalists the uh the album that Whippet was off of, the title is escaping me, but I think New Traditionalist was the album that uh, came out after that. And the big thing with there was they had moved from the flower pots. They were no longer doing the flower pots. They were now all wearing plastic formed uh, John F. Kennedy hair. <laughs> it was the big the big switch. And the lead off single from that album was called Beautiful World. Hmm. And uh, the chorus was It's a Beautiful World We Live In. Uh, but then at the very end, uh, it was, it's a beautiful world for you, not me. And in the video, as they're singing all this stuff about a beautiful world, uh, they're showing, uh, images of like nuclear testing and stuff like that. And so it's this this very kind of dark, ironic thing. And I think that the sort of wacky nature of Whippet, and then you kind of see this, this darker sort of a, a thing. I think that was probably the arrow in the heart for their mainstream career. But the thing about Devo is that Whippet, so I almost put them on my list, is they were one of those bands that they had a career as one thing, sort of art house freaks, mm-hmm. cult artists, really, and they got lucky and had that one hit, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so even though they may have not had a, a lot more chart action, um, their influence, they almost could have been on our, our cult artist show. That's true. Because of that, because the, the influence and how highly regarded they are in, in certain sort of you know, culty segments of music fandom mm-hmm. so far exceeds Whippet. They'd probably be one of those bands that you'd go see in concert and they wouldn't play Whippet. <laughs> yes, that's true. 
So it's be- we're artists. What was the one? Uh, <laughs> it was their first uh, their first radio hit. The "Are We Not Men? We Are Devo" song. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what that was called. You know, I was I, that was the one that came uh, because they had Freedom of Choice. That was another one. Freedom of Choice. That's the Whippet album. Yeah. Uh, and because they had they had some early singles like Jocko Homo and Mongoloid that I don't think necessarily the titles were used in the lyrics, mm-hmm. and so I get confused sometimes about what the "Are We Not Men" song was because the album was titled "Are We Not Men? We Are Devo." That's what I thought, but I don't see. It. Oh, there it is. Oh, and they did a great cover, uh, "Satisfaction." I was just getting ready to bring that up. Um, I have no idea. Uncontrollable urge. No Satisfaction, Praying Hands, Space Junk, Mongoloid, Jocko Homo, Too Much Paranoia, Gut Feeling, Comeback Joni, Sloppy, and Shrivel Up. So, I'm not exactly sure what its actual name is. So, for people who haven't heard their version of Satisfaction, they took this very classic riff rock song and (laughs) did it as this very herky-jerky electronic number, and it sounds nothing like the original obviously but it works oh i think so yeah and they put out an album uh maybe last year that was excellent too um i have no idea what it's called now because it's not on this it's not in spotify and if it's not there i don't think it exists no well i also don't know if 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 us if, if the two of us being based in northeast ohio if we are more aware of the connection between devo and mark mothersbaugh well, I was growing up in uh, Columbus at the time, which, you know, was not affiliated. And I still knew who they were. Still, they were all over the uh, MTV. So, I think it was not just, you know, a Northeast Ohio thing. Because Mark Mothersbaugh has gone on to oh, a geez. very prolific career as a television and film composer. And have you seen he just did a commercial for Kent State? I have. I have seen that. The I Am Kent State mm-hmm. campaign. Which I'm surprised that he did, since he seems to be so counterculture. So that's <laughs> kind of cool. Uh, but he's, he, I think he's most closely associated with the Rugrats. Mm. Did music for the Rugrats. Um, but, but they've all gone on to to do other sort of behind-the-scenes kind of stuff in Devo. So there's a lot more to Devo than Whippet. And yeah, and there's a lot of good songs and a lot of good albums. I mean, boy, they, they, have been, they were pr- quite prolific in the uh, 80s. Sticking with the electronic music uh, theme. You know, I almost put the Human League on here. Hmm. But I th- I think that that people understand that, you know, they did have Don't You Want Me, Fascination, Human. Those are the three big ones. And then on top of that, they had Love Action. Uh, they had Mirror Man. Hmm. I don't remember that one. Um, so I left them off, but ke- keeping with the the electronic music uh, thing is a flock of seagulls. Yes, and that's another one. Any, I bet you you could Google any '80s one-hit wonder list, and Iran by a flock of seagulls <laughs> is going to be on that list, and it's total horseshit <laughs> because they had Space Age Love Song off that same album that came out and was just as big of a hit as I ran. Hmm. I just think it's because it didn't have the snappy, uh, trashy, cheesy video. I think anytime anybody that did not grow up in that era, and some people that did, when they think of Iran, they just think of that video with Mike Score with his crazy hair. And he did not have the flock of seagulls haircut at that point. He almost had kind of a wild Rod Stewart kind of a thing going on. And he's standing at the keyboard in that room of mirrors as the camera is circling around him. (laughs) That's sort of become the iconic Iran image. It's become an iconic 80s image. Yeah. Uh, So they had Space Age Love Song off of that album. They had another minor hit off that record called Telecommunication. And their their follow-up album uh, called Listen had a song called Wishing that hmm. was another uh, fairly significant hit. And we're talking radio, I assume, because I don't remember any video. I, I remember maybe one other video by them, but I think that was one of the reasons that they've become one-hit wonders is because they everyone remembers one video. Right. And that's too bad. They were even, I, I remember hearing that they were doing some sort of race in like L.A. where it was a, a race combined with a one-hit wonders concert where you would run 
and then you would end up at a stage and a one hit wonder would play their one song. So it was like uh, flock of seagulls, uh, bow, wow, wow, and uh, a couple of others. So it was like a, it was like a marathon interrupted by eighties and one hit wonders. And you, I imagine that, and the, they were there. Some of was like, eh. I imagine the name of the race had to have some kind of a play on Iran. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure it did. Another interesting thing about, you know, just kind of a side note about that song is the era when it came out. It was not that long after um, the whole hostage crisis. It was maybe a year and a half, I guess. And so people would hear that song on the radio and they would not immediately associate it with running. Some people thought that it was about the country of Iran. Iran, because it is so far away. <laughs> it is. <laughs> And you really can't run there unless you've got very long legs and can hold your breath for a long time. So those, yeah, that's that's another one that just uh, kind of drives me crazy whenever I see them call the one-hit wonder. Now Bitch that, slap by history. <laughs> now, let's see. Uh, I have to put Flock of Seagulls in just to see. You're putting, what, are you, what are you trying to find there? Well, I was curious if it, you know, anything that it was saying listing uh current albums i love just picking people that i haven't heard of in a while and seeing if they list anything new from them. they had a record that came out in the late 90s early 2000s uh and it was just mike score who was the haircut guy and a, a whole new backing band and they put out an album that actually was not was not half bad hmm. if anybody's seen mike score lately though he's put on a lot of weight and he looks a lot different how do you do you remember his brother? His brother was Ali Score. He looked like Vic Tabak from Alice. <laughs> <laughs> wow, there's there's a person you don't want to emulate. Uh, just when you said uh, gained a lot of weight, I, I just have a, a wonderfully embarrassing story for myself. Uh, when I was working at the uh, amphitheater in uh, Ohio here, uh, my boss got me a gig working at a uh, rib fest. And so it was like three days of... A lot of classic rock people showing up, you know, and they had uh, Jay Giles and uh, uh, Fabulous Thunderbirds, and they had Foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I'm watching the sound check before I, uh, one of the things that I would do as a production assistant slash runner would be when they, uh, drivers who drive all the trucks that drive around all the equipment or all the people would get to a place they would go sleep while the concert was going on so they could get up at the end and then go drive the trucks during the night so i'm watching them do sound check and uh there's a guy singing who sounds really great he sounds so much like lou reed and this was me lou graham or lou graham and you know (laughs) this was the time where they kept putting in new people to replace the other people that sounded like that the the sound like like steve augary for journey yes and so i'm like i'm talking to the uh their driver after they leave Who's the fat guy that sounds just like Lou Graham. And that's exactly what I said. Really? I exactly said He's that. I said that fat guy that sounds like Lou Graham. And, and I was full of their drivers. I mean, there was like four or five of them in this truck and they all just aghast sort of went dead silent. And he said, that is Lou Graham. He had a tumor in his brain, and he put on a little weight. <laughs> I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, then they kicked you out of a moving van. <laughs> that was a very uncomfortable rest of the ride to the hotel. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who's the fat guy that sounds like Lou Graham? That would be post-tumor Lou Graham. <laughs> you insensitive prick. <laughs> oh, my God. Oops. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Jay Giles. It's kind of funny because I think there there are some people that consider Jay Giles a one-hit wonder just because of Centerfold, which is ridiculous. Since, oh, they had I mean, so many. Well, they, they had some that were maybe not during the 80s also. I mean, it wasn't like... Love Bites, more of like a 78 or something. I think Love Bites actually came out in 80. Or maybe that was Comeback that came out in 80. Remember come, you know, they had a song called Comeback, which I can't sing because we don't want to pay the royalties. I remember, but it's not even just the number of hits they had. It's it's the fact that they're another kind of Devo-ish band where 
their longevity. They started out as a house rocking blues band, and then they kind of got on the the new wave train for a while, and then their career petered out shortly after Centerfold. But mm-hmm. uh, just on the basis of their one video hit, to call them a one hit wonder, it's just it's patently stupid. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I, when I saw them, they didn't have uh, Peter Wolf with them. So they were back to being more of the, the blues band they had been before he showed up. Yeah. Or actually, was he in the band when they were a blues band? He I was. Mean, okay. But he but, wasn't, I guess he just wasn't featured maybe? Yeah, and when he left, instead of getting a replacement singer, uh, an existing member named Seth Justman uh, took over. And Seth Justman, you know, he sounded nothing like... Peter Wolf, and I think they didn't really even make an attempt to try to sound like yeah. the hit period of Jay Giles. Good idea. <laughs> yeah, but it, it did. It didn't work. Uh, the band did break up. I think they released one more album uh, after Peter Wolf left. It was called You're Getting Even While I'm Getting Odd. <laughs> and then that was it. Hmm, too bad. Well, apparently they were still alive in the uh, touring circuit. Yeah. Who else you got? Um, my other ones... Oh, oh man, Faith No More. <laughs> yes. I I love The Real Thing, the, their first album. And yes, Epic was a monster hit and a great song. But um, my favorite song off the album was actually, I don't know if it, it must not have been a bigger hit, but uh, Falling to Pieces was a fucking great song. And uh, boy, and they went on and they did that the great cover of... Uh, the Commodores, Sunday morning, and uh, you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, they even had another. Um, By the way, I'm not ooing the Commodores. That's just Mike Patton, the lead singer, in their cover makes that. that noise, and it's just it's funny. <laughs> yeah, that was a just <laughs> wonder, wonderful, uh, odd take on uh, yeah, and um, uh, last cup of sorrow, which was from their I think last album. Uh, was another great song. I mean, so, and it was a chart hit. So I don't know if it was a big chart hit, but yeah, calling them a, a one-hit wonder off of one video is is more like a, a Flock of Seagulls type thing where yeah. they just remember the, the flopping fish. Yep, with the piano chord. Yeah. And that album, actually, the, the real thing, which Point of Order, that was not their first album. That was their oh, first that, album with Mike with Patton. With Mike Patton. There they actually go. had a pretty long career before he joined with that guy who looked exactly like the guy from Fishbone. Yes. <laughs> exactly. He was not the guy from Fishbone. No, but he looked just like him. Looked exactly like the guy from uh, Fishbone. He was like a, a, a biracial dude with like a bleached mohawk, right? Mm-hmm. But the real thing, even though I heard that in our dorm room enough to make me want to vomit because my <laughs> one of my roommates was in love with that album, I've gotten some you know, the the perspective of history, and that is a damn good record. Yeah, it really is. Uh, from out of nowhere, epic facing a uh, epic falling to pieces, surprise you're dead, zombie eaters, real thing. Woodpeckers from Mars, War Pigs, great, another great cover, War Pigs. Yeah, cover so, the Black Sabbath song. Yeah, wow. That, that was an excellent album. There, was, were a lot of, there were really high expectations for their follow-up album, uh, Angel right. Dust, which had, like, what, the co- a cover of a Blue Heron or something on the cover? It yeah. It didn't make any freaking sense at all. And I don't even notice any hits it. Off tanked. It. That album tanked big time. Wow. Great title, like, Jizzlobber. Oh, that, that's where Easy came from. I thought Easy wasn't known. Okay. There was a... Boy, that was the only song I remember off that album. I thought that Easy was off the uh, an EP. That that's they, what I thought, too. Because there was an EP, and it was like, it was like a, what, in, in profile of two rhinoceroses having sex was the album cover. Well, that was when uh, the, I'm, I'm looking at Spotify for this list, and I thought Surprise You're Dead was off of uh, uh, Ted Bill and Ted's uh, Bogus the, Journey. Oh, really? And they also had a song, which I noticed here, off of the incredibly good Judgment Night soundtrack. <laughs> I don't know. The, the movie, I don't remember being anything good at all. But That's the, another interesting point, because uh, Judgment Night, which people probably don't remember, was oh, a, ver- a very you know forgettable film, but it was a high-concept soundtrack where it was a blending of, of rap, music, rap artists and hard rock artists. And this was like in the early 90s when this... Oh, yeah. 
where this came out. Well, actually, Faith No More was considered on the early cusp of the whole rap rock thing, mm-hmm. which uh, I freaking hate rap rock because it was done so much so often so poorly. Uh, but Faith No More, since it was new and since you know, they hadn't really Fred Dursted it yet, it wasn't too bad when they did it. Did you hear that Fred Durst uh, sold a uh, sitcom to, uh, I think it was CBS? I did. Wow. Yeah. Fred Dirtbag. <laughs> what a piece of but crap. I just want to say that the Judgment Night soundtrack, uh, Helmet and House of Pain, Teenage Can- Fan Club and De La Soul, Living Color and MC... Uh, or in running DMC, great bunch. Of, you know, look for that somewhere because that was that was the whole soundtrack album. The, the The soundtrack album actually had a concept completely separate from the film. Yeah, I, I, where every, I would love every to song know. brought together a hard rock artist and a rap artist and put them together to record an original song. I an original believe. song. And Faith No More and Booyah Tribe did a really awesome song on what was it? Another Body Murder. Great, great song. But the whole album is excellent. And still, I mean, I, I've listened to it, you know, somewhat recently. It's still still got some really catchy, kick-ass tunes. I think the real thing came out like in late 89. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And Epic was ruling the, the airwaves in the 90s then. Wow. Or in 1990, rather. I've got some kind of quick hits for artists that I just... You know, these are more of like the hair-splitting artists, the one-hit wonders that weren't. But uh, Scandal, they always talk about The Warrior. Yes, The Warrior was their biggest hit. But several years before The Warrior, they had a much more new, wavy-sounding song called Goodbye to You. Yes, that's an excellent song. And then off of The Warrior, the very same record, uh, there was a song called Beat of a Heart. Hmm. That was the follow-up hit, and also had a video, and was also uh, successful. And if I'm not mistaken, you should look this up on Spotify. Mm. Find find uh, the Warrior. That's the title of the album by Scandal. I'm pretty sure that she did a version of Only the Young by Journey that was on the Vision Quest soundtrack, and it may have been before yep. Journey released theirs. Hmm. And it was not a single, but it was a pretty faithful reproduction of the Journey composition. So how did she get it? That's a good question. I do not know. Hmm. Kim Carnes. <laughs> Betty Davis Eyes. Yep. Which was huge and you know, won a bunch of, you know, an ass load of Grammys. Uh, but she had, before, before that had come out, she'd done a duet with, uh, Oh, the country artist that's messed up his face. Uh, Kenny Rogers. <laughs> I'm thinking he like got in an accident. Or well, he did, with a plastic surgeon. <laughs> Remember me telling you that he was, he, did, he gave this interview and he, he'd gotten his face lifted so tightly he now had to shave behind his ears? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> wow. I mean, you look at you look at Kenny Rogers. You can't believe somebody paid to look like that. Yeah, he looks like he 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 looks like his face caught on fire. <laughs> had the plastic reconstructive, yeah. Uh, but she so she had that. It was, Don't fall in love with a dreamer was the one with uh, with Kenny Rogers. <coughs> okay, and uh, she had a song called Voyeur, which was a very cool, uh, new wavy kind of a song that came out on the album after the Betty Davis Eyes album. And then Tell Me You Remember Crazy in the Night from the Barking at Airplanes album. Wow. No. That's another one that was... The name of the album was Barking at Airplanes? certainly was. Oh, that's a memorable title. And Crazy in the Night was was the single. Wadi Wachtel was in her band at that time, and I think he's even in the video. And if you think, if those of you listening, if you think you don't know who Wadi Wachtel is, do Google shirts on him and you'll go, oh, okay. the John Lennon guy <laughs> with the freaky hair. Uh, Tiffany. I enjoyed her body. <laughs> <laughs> She's another one. I think we're alone now. They say that's her only hit. It's a patent. 
Oh, falsehood. Yeah. From the very same record, she had that huge ballad, Could Have Been. Yeah, which was even bigger, I think, than Think Her Alone Now. Her terrible cover of I Saw Him Standing There from the Beatles. <laughs> so, you know, that's... I had a cassette single of that. She had a really nice picture in there. <laughs> Do you need some alone time? <laughs> Men Without Hats. They had two. One was like what at the beginning of the eighties, and one at the end because wasn't yes. the you know uh, safety dance and uh, pop goes the world. Exactly. <laughs> so that's two hits, and another reason they're on the list is um, the record that Safety Dance is off of is called Rhythm of Youth, mm. and Rhythm of Youth is one of the best electro pop records of the eighties. They're another one of those bands that they put out an album that is better than it has any right to be. <laughs> because you think you think you know about them from the safety dance. Rhythm of Youth is chock full of excellent songs. And I never understood why. Because, uh, you know, the radio always played what they called the extended version of the safety dance, mm-hmm. which had the kind of boop, 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 boop kind of background synthesizer thing. But then the video version... For some reason, they yanked all that out, and it was only like three minutes long. Yeah. And I never understood why there were two versions of that circulating, because the extended version, in my mind, was was far superior. And were they Australian, or were they maybe of some European or something? I I don't think they were Australian, but Hmm. I could be wrong. I thought they were somewhere from the U.K., Okay. Well, I should have pulled that up so I can listen to it later. I can keep going. So if you've got if you've got somebody, get them in. Uh, I had one more. All right. Who you got? Uh, oh, Gary Newman. Which interesting choice because I don't know a lot about Gary Newman. So uh, talk to me. Well, I, he was. Uh, he had more. Uh, to me, this one was more of a uh, longevity artist. Where they just assume you know one guy one song, but he was with uh, another band, uh, Two Way Army, right? And Gary and, Newman, for those of you that are scratching your heads, going, "Is is he the jug-eared guy from Mad Magazine?" That's <laughs> Alfred E. Newman. Gary Newman is the guy that did a song called Cars, and of course there was a big band in the eighties called The Cars, so it even gets more confusing. So Gary Newman, Cars, but the. Uh, the album that that thing came off of, called "The Pleasure Principle," is a terrific uh, electro pop album. And you know, did that it, have our friends Electric on it? Oh, you know that was a, there was a uh, a terrific band out there called The Dead Weather, which was a side project from. Well, I guess you can't really call it a side project because the White Stripes aren't doing anything, but another Jack White project. And one thing, they're awesome. But two, a B side, they did a. Phenomenal cover of Our Friends Electric. And, um, no. So did they do like a... I'm not did, sure where it is, but... Did Jack White do like a, a guitar version of it? He he plays the drums in the band. And uh, a girl um, who was the lead singer of a band called The Kills was the lead singer of that. And then there's just other people who I don't know. Um, But it kind of sounds like... Uh, like uh like if the rolling stones was was a much uh dirtier funkier band and fronted by an incredibly excellent singing female it's it, it, the first album is phenomenal the second album's good but the first album's phenomenal and that's one of their b-sides was that song so but and you know is that available as a bonus track on any album versions you know, um, or do you have to get the Japanese import? Well, yeah, I, I think you have to get some sort of you know import section somewhere. Hmm. Um, but the, the Pleasure Principle was the was the album that thing came off of. That's an excellent song, and he's done a lot of you know excellent um, '80s electro pop type albums. And you know, I think you know between. Uh, two-way army and his solo stuff he has a lot of stuff that people should 
look into if they like an 80s sounding band, if they like that car sound. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that you should check into by this guy that'll make you go, oh, he's much better than that one hit. Cars the song, not Cars the band, because he sounds nothing <laughs> like Cars the band. He, he is. He, he's he's very, uh, very much a cult artist. I'm not even sure The Pleasure Principle was his first solo album. Oh, I don't think and, so And Two Way Army was one of those things uh, where the, the evolution was a little weird. I don't know if it was a Nine Inch Nails situation where he was always Two Way Army because... At one point, he put out an album called Two Way Army. So, I mean, it gets it, the guy is always screwing himself by doing stuff like that. Uh, but he, do, I mean, I think he continues to record and perform right. in Europe to this day. Exactly. And he's his hair is totally white now, and he looks really freaky. <laughs> but there's, I mean, you know, looking at here and just looking on Spotify, Pleasure Principle, you know, it's eighty tech. Telecon 80, Premier Hits 81, Dance 81, I Assassin 82, Warriors 83, Berserker 84, Fury 85, Strange Charm 86, New Anger 88. Those are all in just the 80s. He's, He's very prolific. prolific. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's, it's uh, good electropop albums. What about your men in Rat? For whatever reason... <laughs> Rat occasionally pops up on these one-hit wonder lists. Wow, they're so not <laughs> Because of Round and Round. <laughs> Again, I think it's the video, because people just remember the one video. But they had they had a lot more. I mean, uh, gosh, uh, Way Cool Jr., uh, Shame, Shame, Shame. Um, gosh. There was Dance, Dance, Dance. Dance, Dance. What was the big single off Invasion of Your Privacy? Although maybe I shouldn't ask you that, since previously you admitted you couldn't remember the album. But but even even oh, uh, even out of the cellar had Wanted Man on it. You're in love. You're in love. That was the big single off of Invasion of Your Privacy. Yep. And yeah, they, they, yeah, they've had uh, a lot of a lot of singles and a lot of uh, dance. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're they're an excellent, excellent pop band. And then Spandau Ballet. <laughs> that's one that should hopefully incense our European listeners. I think that that's got to be an American thing because even though here in the U.S. they did have more hits than True, they didn't have as many hits here as they had in Europe. And so, I guess that's a little dicey because maybe we can say from an American perspective, okay, maybe they are a one-hit wonder. But as far as Europe, they're in Europe, they were pretty much as big as Wham and Duran Duran. I mean, they were very big over there. And it's just a little... It'd be like calling Bruce Spring... Well, okay. It would be like calling Bruce Springsteen a one-hit wonder because he's not very popular in Europe. You know, it's just... It's stupid. And it's ethnocentric, and it offends me. So, there. Well, I'm glad we've had a chance to bitch slap history and correct their wrongs. We're going to bitch slap history back. So since we're talking about one-hit wonders that weren't, and the whole one-hit wonder topic, I thought that it would be good to discuss some actual one-hit wonders. Because, I mean, there are. It happens. The one the thing that, the, the, that kept popping into my head was like Timbuk3 with the future so bright I got to wear shades. One-hit wonder. Oh, yeah. Um, remember Modern Day Delilah? Hmm. I remember that name. But by an artist named Van Stevenson. Uh, very talented guy. Excellent songwriter. Uh, Modern Day Delilah, which uh, Kiss, 25 years later, would write and record a song with the exact same title, but that was completely different. Uh, Why? <laughs> but look, see if you can find that one. But they, that's that's maybe a topic for another show, because uh, the album that that was off of was called Righteous Anger, and it's a fantastic fantastic record sort of a little brian adamsy but but not uh very good timex social club rumors absolutely a one-hit wonder yeah that was a huge song and then you know because of all of their contractual and management issues and stuff they disappeared and their manager formed club nouveau and you know timex social club ceased to exist hmm. uh but we also wanted to talk about kind of a, a battle of the ultimate one-hit wonders. And the song, we've identified three songs that we feel are 
in the battle for greatest one-hit wonder of all time. One comes from the 1960s, one comes from the 1970s, one comes from the 80s. So we're talking Louie Louie by the Kingsmen, My Sharona by the Knack, and 8675309Jenny by Tommy Two-Tone. This is a pretty good field because they all <laughs> they all have serious things in their favor. What what I'm trying to avoid is that reflexive thing of saying, "Well, Louis Louis's been around the longest and is still in the public consciousness, and so mm-hmm. it wins by default." And because an argument could be made for that, but what what True. are your thoughts? Well, uh, which one is the the greatest one? Is the I would say the um. How would you? I, 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 what would be the categorization of what what would make it the best? Right. And, yeah, because there's different ways to look at it. Yeah, and well, I would go with. Um, so it's not really so much about arriving at the answer; it's about talking through how you might quantify it. I think. Yeah. Do you look? I uh, longevity. I, you, all three of those have lasted as mm-hmm. far as you know longevity and as and. As far as touch tone references, I think uh, Sharona and uh, Jenny have actually are more pop culture lexicon notes than Louie Louie is. As far as taking you back to a specific point in time? Well, as, as what people can reference as. You know, I mean, I think to me, you know, part of being a one hit wonder is how often you can say that and someone goes, oh, one hit wonder. Mm-hmm. And I think Louie Louie. Uh, while is a a one hit wonder, it I don't know if it categorizes to me the ultimate one hit wonder because I don't know if you said that Louis Louis immediately people are going to think oh one hit wonder, and even with my Sharona, they think of it as a classic song or an eighties song. But I think to me, if you say eight six seven five three zero nine Jenny, people will immediately go oh one hit wonder. <laughs> I mean, so so to me, you know, that right there would would say, in that sense, which one is pop culturally referenced as the one hit wonder more often than anything else? I would say it would be Jenny. That's an interesting way to look at it. I I personally lean toward Jenny, just because I'm Mister Eighties. <laughs> uh, but I think there's also a strong case to be made for Louis Louis. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right that Louis Louis actually has become such a part of the fabric of advertising, you know, in and uh, movies. It, it crops up a lot. Mm-hmm. That it's almost taken on a life of its own, and we're so far removed now from when it was released. And you combine that with how disinterested today's music listeners are with anything that happened before last week <laughs> that I don't know. It's a good point. I don't know how many people would hear that song and think, oh, the Kingsman, one hit wonder from the 60s. Instead, they just might think, oh, that well, that song from the car ad. I would think that if, if someone goes deeper into that song other than, oh, uh, you know, from that ad or from that they would know they would reference it first as that song that got banned because they couldn't understand the lyrics and you know like moving down you know the top five things maybe fifth they'll get to you know third or fourth they'll get to one hit wonder Mm -hmm. but you know when you go to my sharona you know you can say you know uh classic song you know the problems it wasn't that was the the band that had the problems getting recordings right that was the band that just crashed and burned because the knack was going to be the next big thing, and there was a huge marketing push. And you know, My Sharona comes out of the box and is a number one hit, and it's massive and it's huge. And then they just fell off a cliff, and it's considered one of the. Uh, they're pretty much like the Tim Couch of rock and roll, one of the biggest <laughs> busts in rock history. So, so and then you have that, and then when you get to to Jenny. I don't even know if there's anything past one hit wonder. <laughs> I mean, you know, there there's one reference for that piece. And but you know, as far as, you know, which one people recognize as a song, I think maybe more people 
would say if you played all three of those songs, I think more people would recognize Louie Louie because it's more used in ads and more used in television. So if you look at it as which one would the three of these would people know the most, I think Louie Louie. Yeah, because the more we talk about how its own success maybe has diminished its uh, standing as a one-hit wonder, the more that we're arguing for that, we're actually, I think, arguing for the fact that it is the greatest one-hit wonder of all time <laughs> because it has transcended that, and it has it's it's just become this sort of juggernaut onto its own. That's true. Uh, a side note about eight six seven five three zero nine Jenny, which of course is by the band Tommy Two Tone. It's not a guy; it's a band. Uh, <laughs> they did have a, a minor hit on a previous album called Angel Say No, which you could walk up to 100 people and maybe one of them would go, oh, yeah, I vaguely remember that. So I'm, I'm, I don't have a problem with categorizing them as a one-hit wonder. The crazy thing is the album that that song is off of and the one that came before, they're great albums. But nothing is as great as Jenny. <laughs> I almost think if they had never released that song, they might have had a better career. <laughs> oh, that's disappointing. Because their other stuff is good. <laughs> really good. Not even kind of good. It's good stuff. You would put on either one of those records as a fan of 80s music, and you would like them a lot. But then Jenny comes out, and it's got this great story. It's got this great riff, just memorable, just an awesome, awesome song. And suddenly, everything else is just kind of like... Pales in comparison. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's really weird. You really have to, you have, to, like, you have to try, like I did. You have to really try to get into them as a band because of that. Wow, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they should have written it. They should have released it, you know, years after in the... <laughs> Wow. Hmm. So are we saying that Louie Louie is the greatest one-hit wonder of all time? Well, it, it has transcended itself and become, you know, the juggernaut of, of one-hit wonders. It, it actually has. So, yeah. All right. Well, so that's our that's our verdict is Louie <laughs> Louie. So but we'd love to hear from you. And and this is a, a great topic, I think, for, for listeners to to get involved because there's so much music that has come out in, in the rock and roll era. And you know, we didn't dive into the 50s at all because I'm sure that there's lots of stuff from there. That, but when, you know, when people were still first sort of dipping their toe in the water of this new kind of music, there's probably mm-hmm. lots of artists through trial and error that hit once and then fell by the wayside. And oh, so... Okay. If you've got a song that uh, that you think that we missed, or if there's a, a song that you think should have been in the in the greatest one hit wonder conversation, by all means, let us know about it. You can uh, go to Facebook and look up the Mister Eighties page, M I S T E R eight zero S. You can post it on our wall, or you can uh, shoot us a message there. Uh, you can uh, send us an email at Mr. 80s at rocketmail.com, M-I-S-T-E-R-8-0-S at rocketmail.com. And uh, you can also visit the blog, which is mr80s.wordpress.com. Before we wrap it up, uh, we have just a few more minutes in the hour. I thought I'd see if you uh, had listened to any of the new albums that came out. The Lou Reed and Mr. and uh, Metallica, the Beach Boys, or if you had anything to say to point people to those. Since I've had a chance to listen to them, I just figured. Oh, you did listen to Smile. I did because we had uh, we'd exchanged emails and about the whole Lulu thing, uh, which is the collaboration with uh, Lou Reed and Metallica. I listened on their website to the stream that they had going which was just a continuous stream, and it's a double album, a double CD. That's a lot of music, and I maybe got through half of it. Uh, and the song that uh, leapt out at me was a tune called Iced Honey, uh, which I thought worked very well. Mm. Uh, I've never been all that afraid of this project because I like Lou Reed when he's, when he's rocking out, and Lou Reed has always had periods in his career when he has had very 
competent hard rock bands backing him up and he always excels in that type of environment so i wasn't all that worried i was more worried about the metallica fans going what the hell is this guy and they did I, I was looking on itunes and there's just a whole bunch of people going what the fuck is this shit <laughs> yeah okay is it all just because he drones on and can't carry a tune is oh, that yeah, the problem yeah i think I, I saw this quote all over uh that it, they it sounded like a uh a drunk stumbled in and rambled onto a microphone while Metallica was playing. Yeah. So I think that if you're a Lou Reed fan, it's it's not it, not that big of a leap. No. If you've really followed his career, you understand that he's done this before. He's done it with Robert Quine instead, though, of Kirk Hammett. Yeah. So. And the bands were into, you know, the band was into it just as much as Lou Reed, and I think it was a phenomenally awesome album. In fact, as I was listening to it, I was getting annoyed when James Hetfield would do like a harmony or something. and be like, just shut up and let Lou handle the singing. Well, the first track on, that they have on the album, even when I was listening to the little 30-second uh, clip on iTunes, it, it, the, the vocals for, that James did on the, in that first song was, it almost seemed like out of sync with, with what Lou Reed was doing. I thought it was kind of weird, but it was the only time on the album where that seemed a little odd but it, it the more i listened to it the more it grew on me but the whole album i thought was phenomenal i think to me it sounded like a cross between um improvisational jazz art rock and hard rock and then smile uh which just to give a little bit of history you know, we're talking about the beach boys here which if all you know about the beach boys is car songs and beach songs just stop listening now <laughs> Uh, Smile was supposed to be, you know, the greatest album of the '60s. Pretty much, what happened was Brian Wilson, uh, the Beatles, put out Rubber Soul. Brian Wilson heard that. Brian Wilson is the creative force behind the Beach Boys. If you don't know that, stop listening now. Uh, and uh, so, Brian Wilson's answer to Rubber Soul was an album called Pet Sounds. Paul McCartney heard Pet Sounds rallied the Beatles, and the Beatles' answer to Pet Sounds was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. What we're talking about here is like a friendly competition between uh, musicians of the era where they're kind of trying to top each other. So Rubber Solo comes out. Brian Wilson hears it. It blows his mind. He says, I've got to top this. He does Pet Sounds. Paul McCartney hears Pet Sounds. It blows his mind. He says, my band has to top this. They do Sgt. Pepper. Smile was supposed to be brian wilson's answer to sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band it was supposed to be his kind of upping the ante and what happened was uh brian wilson had a mental breakdown and was never able to finish the album and it has become uh, legendary as the greatest unreleased album of all time uh several years ago brian wilson as a solo artist got a new band together and did recreate this album but what has happened now is that they have the record company has finally gone into the vaults and they have tried to piece together using the original sessions from 1967 to piece together what the album could have sounded like with using, input using, from Wilson and Mike Love. Using the I mean I don't think they even did the augmentation, did they? It was all original tracks. Yeah, all original. And so they've put out a five CD box set now that just kind of runs the gamut. So Nick's had a chance to sample this. So tell me your impressions. Well, uh, right off the bat, I would say I don't hear the greatest album ever. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, uh, it sounds to me. I know, you know, I, I know the Beatles from their uh, from their singles. The Beach Boys or the Beatles? The Beach Boys. Okay, I know the Beach Boys from their singles, and I just, you know, I know, you know, the harmon, the harmonies, and the, the beautiful sound, and the sing along choruses, and it seemed like a lot of the a lot of what I would equate the Beatles or the the Beach Boys sound with is not quite as there because it's trying to be it's trying to be weird and quirky for the sake of being weird and quirky, almost like he was trying to maybe be something that he wasn't. So he you know he was trying to take his genius in a different direction, but I don't think it actually went where he wanted to go and he didn't know how to get there so you know it's like he was at point a and you know then he was at point c and he couldn't figure out how to link the two because yeah. i think to me that's you know the, there is no there's no link between the uh 
exploration part and the Beach Boys. There is, you know, he needs that center point of B, and it's not there. It's interesting, and, you know, there are some really good parts in it, but as a whole, as the, you know, greatest pop album ever, you know, that never got released, no. And, and I don't think it ever... Uh, what made me want to listen to it was reading the Rolling Stone review of it, and David Frick was talking about how, even after listening to all this, the greatest pop album is somewhere buried within these five CDs, but it's not the first disc. It's not what which it, it's not there, but at some point, you know, maybe within all of this, you know, you know, like if you can put it together like a you know like a puzzle maybe there is some combination that that would turn this into you know the greatest thing ever but it's not it's just bits and pieces of greatness and i think that it would have been better off unreleased frankly because the fragments from the recording sessions have been available as bootlegs forever i've got a single cd boot that you know that I bought in the early '90s, and I thought pretty much the exact same thing that you just said. That there's a lot of germs of ideas, and, and that's how Brian Wilson was working at that point. The the most fully realized recording to come out of the Smile sessions, people have already heard. Right. It's a song called "Good Vibrations." It's three and a half minutes long. Uh, Brian called it a pop, uh, pocket symphony. And it, if you listen to that song, it really kind of shows the modular approach that he was taking to his music at the time. It's, if you really listen to Good Vibrations, you're going to hear the different sections, the different fragments of music that he put together. The thing with Good Vibrations is he was able to find that linking material to put those sections together. Mm-hmm. That was his approach to the entire Smile album. Hence, what you have are a lot of these little snippets Some are 30 seconds, some are 15 seconds, some are a minute and 20 seconds, but he never found the way to put them all together. And so it's really a very frustrating listening experience for that reason. And especially when you you listen to uh, Good Vibrations and you hear, and if you could put out an entire album of Good Vibrations, Mm -hmm. that would be fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, it's, it's a shame that he couldn't. But, you know, it could be that maybe, you know, not finding that link is what drove him batshit. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> drove like looking for, it took him 20 years to come out of the desert. Looking for the lost cord or something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I also listened to, just in case anyone cares, the uh, new Florence and the Machine, the new Kelly Clarkson which I thought was an interesting parallel is that it, uh, I love Kelly Clarkson's voice. I think she sounds like an amazing singer. Um, but I think with so many, you know, girls who sing pop, uh, I think Christina Aguilera has a great voice, but she just, you know, waters it down with shitty productions. And it sounds like in this new album that someone who produces top 40 pop albums for people like Florence and the Machine just stuck, you know, Kelly Clarkson's voice on their track. So it's yeah, unfortunately disappointing. But Florence the Machine sound like Florence the Machine, so they sound good. So I've only uh, I've got a, a friend who's a big fan of Florence the Machine. My only exposure to them was when they performed live on Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. which no band ever sounds good performing live on Saturday Night Live. But they sounded exceptionally awful, and so I've never really <laughs> given them any more thought. But they're People are talking about them like they're the next big thing, but whenever they talk about them, it's like they're talking about a copy of the Arcade Fire, which is interesting because when people talked about the Arcade Fire, they talked about them as though they were a copy of U2. So does that mean Florence and the Machine is now a copy of a copy? Hmm. I could sort of see. that I I never listened to the Arcade Fire, so I I can't really, I can't connect that dot, but I can sort of see the... uh, the the production for uh, the album and so far in the last you know the, the album before this is kind of um, orchestrally bombastic, <laughs> but not in an obnoxious way. So I can sort of see where that production might link you into a modern day uh, U two 
kind of uh, uh, orchestral, bombastic arena rock. Um, her voice, I, I don't really have. I, I, uh, there's a lot of female singers where they kind of do a warbly thing that it makes me want to vomit. <laughs> um, Is that when they start waving their hands around? Well, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but she doesn't. Her voice doesn't annoy me. Um, I think she does a pretty good job with it. She, the their 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 production is interesting. The lyrics are interesting, so I think they're a good band. And with and, that, and that's good. All right. So until next time. <laughs> good night, Wallace Sean, wherever you are. <laughs>